those that don't know you, my name's Damien. I have a beard. I run the men's ministry with my mate Andrew. Um, it's called Men of Honour. We pride ourselves... That's good. <laughs> uh, we pride ourselves on being honourable men, men of integrity, um, and no matter what the cost. Which means that sometimes I offend people by telling the truth. And if I have offended you by telling the truth, I don't care. <laughs> also, if I offend you this morning by telling the truth, which very may well happen, I'm not sorry about that either. Um, the other night we were watching at Men of Honor a movie called War Room. It was the first time I'd seen it. And to be honest, I didn't really like it. When I say something's pretty good, um, people that know me know that when I say pretty good that's somewhere between I didn't need to set myself on fire and it was bearable so that's that's what I thought of the movie to be honest with you but there's this one point in the movie that really got my attention it was um, there's this little old lady and little old ladies can get away with stuff that no one else can get away with because they're little old ladies and there's this little old lady and um, this woman comes to visit her a real estate agent she's trying to sell a house and they strike up the conversation and they find out that each other are Christians. And the old, little old lady quizzes the real estate agent and says, um, do you go to church? Do, do you pray? What's your faith like? And she said, oh yeah, I, I, I go to church. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. And then she goes and makes a cup of coffee for, for, the, for the real estate agent. She brings it out and you can see the little old lady's got a nice steaming hot cup of coffee and she starts sipping pleasantly away on it. And the real estate agent takes a sip out of it. She nearly spews because it's room temperature. The woman hadn't even, even heated the jug and, and she's made her a, a lukewarm cup of coffee. And that got me thinking because sometimes our Christian faith can be lukewarm. Now, I knew that these... Ladies were going to become soldiers this morning when I got asked to do the message. Don't feel that this is pointed at you because it isn't. I don't preach about anything that isn't relevant to me. Otherwise, I'm not qualified to talk about it. So this is as much for me as everyone else in this room. When it comes to coffee options, um, everyone has their preferences. But generally speaking, everyone likes if you want to trigger a gag reflex, we'll just let it conform to room temperature. <laughs> so, J Jesus says in Revelation, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In one version, it says, I'm going to spew you up. His gag reflex is working overtime for people that are lukewarm. He hates it. See, when we first accept Jesus, we do it because we're overwhelmed by the urgency. And as we make our way to the mercy seat to recite some form of the sinner's prayer for the first time, um, we never expect that feeling is going to go away, that excitement and that, that we're going to take on the world for Jesus. And it doesn't feel like that feeling is ever going to go away. But over time, we let our faith sit and conform to the world and it starts to sit at room temperature. We try to keep the spark alive, but all the while we limit it to just being a spark. 
obviously we don't want to be cold to Jesus, so we end up in that middle ground, and it's the perfect spot that just happens to trigger his gag reflex. The reality is, myself included, that many of us are just comfortable Christians. And comfortable Christianity is a dangerous place to be because that's that middle ground. It's neither hot nor cold. It's just comfortable. It's just so-so. It's just average. And instead of challenging each other to be more like Jesus, we've got a false sense of safety in numbers. And instead of reflecting Jesus, we reflect the people that we hang around instead. And that's dangerous too. It's scientifically proven that you become most like the five people that you spend most of your time with. So that's why it's so important to pick your friends wisely. You know, my mother, in her infinite wisdom, would know exactly who I'd been hanging around with by my attitude when I came home that, that evening. If I was in, you know, if I was doing the right thing and wasn't giving her lip and, you know, being a good little child, she'd know that I was hanging around the good guys. And if I came home and my attitude wasn't so great, she'd know that I'd been hanging around someone I shouldn't have been hanging around with. We rub off onto other people. There may be a time in our life when our, our zeal and our fire for Jesus really was great and, and we had a genuine passion for him and at some point we genuinely wanted to reflect him but instead we began reflecting the people around us. Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. There's this guy called Peter, and he loved Jesus so much. He was willing to die for him, or fight and die for him, at least in the beginning. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter attacked one of him, and he cut his ear off with his sword. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He reprimands him. He, he tears him a new one. He gives him a verbal for, for wanting to protect Jesus. And imagine the moment that you're Peter and Jesus has just predicted that you're going to disown him and here you are bravely proving that you won't. Bravely, you just being a common fisherman, attack a professional soldier, hack his ear off and Jesus reprimands you. Wow. You were reprimanded because you failed to represent Jesus properly. Get this, we attack who we perceive to be the enemy while Jesus seeks to heal who we perceive to be the enemy. Let me ask you this, does your faith hurt or heal your enemies? Just like Peter, we find ourselves unable to lay our lives down. We might not do it on purpose, but we disown him under social pressure. We disown him by um, attacking social adversity. We disown him by seeking material gain or getting tied up in work. We don't do it intentionally at first, but we all do it in some form. I'm guilty of it myself. And there's so many ways to disown Jesus, but ultimately we do it the most commonly by misrepresenting his passion. Just like Peter did. I was out the other night um, with my mate and I walked past this bit of graffiti and it said, there is no God. 
And I just thought, wow. For me as a Christian, and for many of you too, um, it's pretty agitating when we see active atheism out on the streets or on the news or in the paper. You know, it, something stirs up inside us. So, um, you know, the, the atheists go around trolling, um, trolling along trying to sue governments and remove prayer and, and scriptures and Bibles from schools. And even in the States recently, in America, um, they removed crosses from war memorials. They were approved by the government to do that because it was offensive to them. So clearly, atheists are our enemies. Their blood boils against us and our blood boils back. But no atheist hates Christians more passionately than Saul of Tarsus did. No atheist would be zealously against um, Christians as much as he was. Saul hated Christians so much that he actually went on tour searching to imprison and kill them. He was like the Gestapo before the Gestapo. He did everything in his power to find and just eradicate them. He wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he was the first anti-Christian activist. Contrary to belief, atheists aren't the enemy. We often see their activism as a uh, direct threat. After all, they blaspheme and mock the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible says the name of the God is blasphemed among you. He's talking about us. I read that and I was like, wait, what? Christians are the enemy? The enemies of God aren't people who are passionately against him. They're the people who use him for what they're passionately against. I'm going to repeat that. The enemies of God aren't people who are passionately against him. They're the people who use him for what they are passionately against. They use Jesus to endorse themselves. The real enemy of the church is within the church. A religious spirit that allows us to be adherence to something that we're not truly passionate about. I was going to say I'm willing to bet my tithes and offerings, but I'm a soldier in the Salvation Army and we don't gamble. So <laughs> I'm willing to suggest... <laughs> that most atheists wouldn't mind Christians half as much if we were actually more like Jesus. They might still think we're idiots, but at least we'd be loving, kind and compassionate idiots. In fact, they might even appreciate us. They might even jump on board with some of the things that we would have crusaded for, like social justice and anti-discrimination and, and social welfare. It was the religious leaders of the time who hated Jesus. It wasn't the pagan Romans. Even Pontius Pilate, the governor, he even appealed on Jesus' behalf. He said, why? What crime has this guy committed? But they all shouted, crucify him. Can you picture Christians being appealed for on behalf of atheists today? No. What if atheists could say, what crime have Christians committed? <laughs> it's a bit too late for that, unfortunately. Somehow, the same religious type that cried, crucify him, have become Jesus' representation. How does that sit with you? It's harsh, I know, but 
Jesus said we would be hated by the world, but not for being self-righteous. Religion has caused so much cultural strife. We've made non-believers intolerant of our intolerance. But they can't see that because they so passionately hate us. Christians have made the world worse in some places. We've brought darkness instead of light, driving people away from Jesus. Who knew that the whole time the enemy of God, the instrument of hate, was Christians? The use of Jesus to support our causes. And let's face it, over the past several centuries, Christianity has spread through the world in a good cop, bad cop kind of fashion. You know what good cop, bad cop is, don't you? So the good cop tactic is the good cop, bad cop tactic is really effective in, in making a suspect talk and, um, and also making a pagan a Christian. But bef- <laughs> the, the way it works is the good cop um, coerces compliance out of a suspect with compassion and kindness um, by I- stepping in while the bad cop's giving him a hard time and, and t- giving him a bit of a touch-up. Before you and a friend go out and start witnessing in that form um, and trying to make Christians, just let me let me say this: um, What kind of believers have been produced by that tactic? It makes Christians who are held to their faith by fear. The fear of going to jail is much like the fear of going to hell. Once the fear is overcome, the cop or the witness to the Christian is powerless. Like many kids, um, when I was in primary school, I dealt with bullies growing up. And I complied to their abuse until I realised that all they had was fear. The worst they could do was hit me. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 And perhaps the encounter that we had isn't with Jesus, but with religious fear instead. I mean, Jesus was merely a means to escape hell, and when we're no longer scared, then Jesus is no longer relevant. Because our encounter with him wasn't based on our love for him. It was based on fear. Who thinks I'm being a bit harsh? No? That's good. I don't care if you do. (laughs) He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. That's found in Acts. Now, back to Saul. He was on a bloodthirsty, anti-Christian mission. And suddenly, um, the subject of his persecution has knocked him down blind for three days. And like him, our encounter with Jesus can blind us as well. And we say it all the time, I was blind, but now I see. The idea, of course, is that we were spiritually unaware of our sin, but now we walk in the light. After all, we view non-believers like they're blind, don't we? I mean, they unknowingly walk around in darkness, but the problem is we do it on purpose. People who are blind to Jesus can still be good and respect others and have good morals. There's a lot of non-Christians out there that are doing wonderful things in the world. 
They love their families and they love their kids and they serve their community. But we still think we've got the moral high ground. Failing to see that faith isn't only blind, but it's powerless without the love of Jesus. Our faith is nothing without love. People we call sinners are actually better off than us. And in fact, they're probably better off without us if that's our attitude too. If someone has encountered a false Jesus, then they can only profess a false faith. Jesus said, you'll know my followers by their fruit. But many who think they're following Jesus are only blinding the world with a misrepresentation. Matthew 6.22 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? The Pharisees thought they were the closest to God. But they were probably actually the furthest at the time. The light they thought they had was darkness. The God they served was fear. And they inflicted that on all the people. The God they served was tradition and social status. And they never allowed their faith to transform them. Instead, they transform their faith to suit them. And we've got to be careful not to do the same. By no stretch am I a handyman. My wife will tell you that. I'm rubbish at fixing things. I was living in this house and there was four lights in the kitchen, in the kitchen area. And one, when one of the four lights flickered out, I was like, meh. And I, I, it was no big deal. There's still three more lights there. Um, and after a couple of months, I went in and the second light flickered out. And I thought, yeah, the visibility in the kitchen wasn't real great when the second light went out. Um, so this time I couldn't really ignore it. Um, so I, I, I ignored it. <laughs> after a couple of more months... <laughs> Uh, the third light flickered out and I tell you, it was really hard to see in there. Now I, I needed to do something. So I replaced the bulb and I stood back proudly thinking, oh yeah, I'm Tim the Tool Man, and then it fell out and smashed on the floor. <laughs> so, well, that's what you get for trying. <laughs> Great. So for months, and it lasted for months, I just had this one light in the kitchen and I did everything, squinting in the dark and making sandwiches and making coffee and doing breakfast and cooking dinner with this one light. And then, um, I mean, you know, who needed four lights anyway? <laughs> and then I stepped into the kitchen one morning and I flipped the switch, nothing fourth and final light had finally gone and I stood there for a moment in the darkness realizing that over the course of 12 months I'd allowed four lights to blow in my kitchen and it just so happened I was in a rush to have snack time so I wanted to make myself a manwich which is like a sandwich but it's much bigger um, and coffee and have snack time so I the, the dining room lights were on and there was just enough reflection in the dining room to see what I was doing in the kitchen. 
And so I went to the kitchen and I made my manwich and I made my coffee and I sat down and I, I was thinking to myself, this is really bad. How did I let this happen? I've let four lights blow. So I figured enough is enough. I'm finally going to go out. I'm going to buy four light bulbs and I'm going to replace them all. And I came home and I replaced two of them. And I turned it on and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't see. It's blinding. The light was so bright because I'd been in the darkness for so long. These two, I actually turned them back off because it hurt my eyes. It probably didn't help that I had like the ones that you see on the front of semi-trailers that I've installed in the roof. I was like a, a roux in the headlights in a kitchen. It was ridiculous. So I, I actually considered taking one of those light bulbs out and going back to one light bulb again because I was comfortable with that. I did decide to keep the two lights and uh, I let my eyes adjust. But the first thing I noticed, there was crap everywhere. There was crumbs on the bench and there was crumbs on the floor and there was crumbs on the crumbs and there were utensils out of place and somehow I damaged one of the cupboards as well. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? This is terrible. And I spent the next hour cleaning um, and I was amazed at how good everything looked. Um, when I didn't look at it with, you know, light. <laughs> As Christians, we claim to have the light. That's Jesus. But some of us have conveniently allowed his presence in our lives to diminish. At first, it seems minimal. At first, it doesn't seem like a big issue. At first, it's not a problem. But as Jesus continues to become less and less relevant in our lives we become less and less aware of the problem and we're comfortable with that. Many of us have allowed Jesus to completely flicker out and we ultimately operate under the reflection of someone else's light, if at all. And all the time, things seem fine. Things seem okay. The question is, do we do something about it or do we just stay comfortable with it? After Saul encountered Jesus, he became like Jesus. He loved everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. Whether they reciprocated it or not, he just loved on everyone like Jesus does. He loved those who beat and jailed and falsely accused him. He devoted his life to the passion of Jesus, and to him nothing else mattered. When I was in uh, Bible college, I learned that some scientists actually attribute that vision loss that, um, that Saul had to a psychosis because, you know, scientists know everything. And some of them suggested it was a mood disorder. We were doing this study on, you know, um, miracles and, and interactions and apparitions and things that happen in the Bible and that was one of the scientists' suggestions. It must have been just a mood disorder or, a, or some form of psychosis. I need that disorder in my life. <laughs> I need that kind of psychosis that makes me love on everybody. If that's psychosis, then I want it, that form of it. If, if that mood disorder gives me um, gentleness and, and kindness and faithfulness and, and self-control, I need that in my life. Atheists and Christians have something in common. 
We've got no desire to seek the true Jesus. Comfortable Christians. Seeking Jesus isn't about finding the light, though. It's about becoming the light. We need to be light. Jesus says, be light and be salt. Don't search for it, be it. Saul was on a bloodthirsty, anti-Christian mission. But he, his life was transformed by the light. I hope that if you've reached a, a, a spot in your life where that light is diminished and you're comfortable there, that you'll go out and get some new light bulbs today. Because being comfortable is a dangerous place to be. People are sick of the impractical, emotional, traditional, fear-based faith in Jesus that churches push on to people. That's not what we're about here. We want people to be like Jesus. We want people to follow Jesus. Many of us barely manage to cling on to the faith at times. We've lost the purpose and passion of seeking him. James 4.3 says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with many wrong motives that you may spend what you have on your own pleasures. I'm going to ask you to pray shortly, but before we do, I just want to let you know that we often find ourselves making up some pretty bullcrap prayers sometimes. And there's three major types. The I need a miracle prayer, the we need something outside of God's will prayer, and the verbatim prayer set out of habit. Number one, the I need a miracle prayer, the prayer that's usually made in lieu of being responsible. Um, it could be anything from passing a test that you haven't studied for, or healing a menacing hangover, <laughs> or even praying not to be pregnant. All those things, are, I need a miracle prayers. Not going to work. In exchange for God's services, we promise never to be in that situation again. And of course, we end up in that situation again. Why not be genuine to God? His role in our lives isn't the clean-up guy. He's not a divine butler. And our payment to him shouldn't be empty promises. Number two, this prayer contradicts God's will. It can be anything from, Lord, make me so rich that I don't need to rely on you anymore, um, to, Lord, please pour out your wrath on the Muslims and the homosexuals and the atheists and the generally anyone that you've called me to be a light to. <laughs> the tragedy in those prayers <laughs> is that we end them in Jesus' name. He's not going to co-sign that rubbish. He's not going to co-sign on a prayer like that. In fact, when we say in Jesus' name, we're actually saying that we request that all that lines up with his will. We're forging his signature. It might be better to recognize whose will we're actually seeking to fulfill, our own. 
to put things in context, let's use our own names at the end of the prayer. It'll be just as effective anyway. Number three. This is a prayer that you say verbatim. The problem is we're praying out of habit and not out of our hearts. I often catch myself doing this one. I'll, I'll admit it. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Amen. In Jesus' name. We've all done it. Recently, I began to see that my relationship with Jesus was becoming purely selfish. My interest wasn't surrendering my day to him. It was enhancing my day through him. He was something that I was going through with the aim of achieving a good day or a good result. I demoted him from saviour to personal assistant. That's not his place. So many claim that they're hungry for Jesus, but all they want is material. Are we seeking him to be like him, or are we just wanting another miracle? When we objectify God, when our trust in him is for the material life, he's going to let us down, because that's not what he's about. We all go through seasons in our life where we get lukewarm. We're human. That's what humans do. We make mistakes. But thankfully, Jesus forgives us for those stupid mistakes and the ones that we do on purpose, the ones that we call sin. And when we are lukewarm, when we are seeking material gain, when we are co-signing prayers with his name that don't really line up with his will, he forgives us for that too. If you've got to a point in your life where you've only got one light in the kitchen and it's about to blow, you need to get right with Jesus. And it needs to be a prayer from the heart, not another one of those, oh God, I'll never be in this situation again, please save me. Because we just talked about that. And that's not going to work. It needs to be something from your heart. You need to be genuine about it. And then you need to follow it up. It's not the kind of prayer that you can just say once and then everything's going to be hunky-dory. You need to have a relationship with Jesus to, to maintain that passion. That's why we have to read our Bible. That's why we have to pray. You don't get to know someone just by meeting them once and then never talking to them again. That's why we need to talk to them every day. I don't have time to pray. I might be able to fit five minutes in. You don't get to know your wife by talking to her for five minutes a day. Make some decent time and set it aside on purpose to get to know Jesus. That's what he wants. And then you will be light. You will shine. You will be the right representation of him. I do want to encourage each and every one of you this morning that you can be light. Because my life was in darkness for years and years and years. And I was a bit like Saul. I was one of those guys that persecuted the Christians until I had an encounter with Jesus. I try very hard to be light. I try very hard to be honest. And I try to, my very best to live with integrity, to honor Jesus. So I try to put as much effort into my new life of serving him as I did into my old lifestyle. And he expects nothing less. It's the least he deserves.
when the band comes up, um, if you'd like to recommit your life to Jesus, you don't need to come up to the front and do it. If you'd like someone to pray with you, maybe it's a good idea, but you can do it from your seat. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a, a, a big show. Because that change, that change that you make, it'll be visible to people. Your lifestyle will reflect that decision that you've made. People see something different in you, and they'll be attracted to it. And that's the Jesus in you. If you would like someone to pray with you, please feel free to come up um, while the band's playing and someone will um, minister to you. Don't let it go. Don't put it off. Don't let that last light bulb flick out and let it be too late because the darkness is a horrible place to be. And if you've seen the darkness like I've seen the darkness then you'll appreciate the light all the much more Heavenly Father I thank you I thank you that you bring light into our dark world that you love us even when we're so far off track that nothing that we've done there's nothing that we've done that you can't forgive I pray Lord that this morning if there's anyone that's reached the point in their life where they're just comfortable, they're not hot or cold anymore, that you'd put a passion and a fire back in them. I pray that our church will be a church of hot Christians, not lukewarm or cold Christians. I pray that we'd represent you properly with love and kindness and gentleness and self-control and all those fruit of the Spirit that manifest in us when we follow you properly. I thank you for these things and ask them in Jesus' name.